In just a moment, I'm going to read you from Isaiah 43. I want to remind you, every week when we gather to worship, God is continuing to tell us over and over and over that we belong to him. Listen to this. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, he who formed you, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. If you would, let's respond to this and sing praises to our God together. We have spent this entire year thinking about the Gospel of John, and then in between, in the summer months, we've spent some time thinking about the Sermon on the Mount, um, but we've been going through this idea, life with Jesus. Now, I just want to remind you why. At the end of John chapter 20, around verse 31, you'll find this. John says, there are lots of other things that Jesus said, there are lots of other things that Jesus did. But what I have written for you, I have written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing, you might have life in his name. So that's literally John chapter 20, verse 31. That's where John says, hey, you want to know why I'm writing this book? Right here. I'm writing this so that you may know what life in his name what that means, what it's like, what it looks like, what it feels like, what it, how you reason your way through it. So this whole book is about life with Jesus, and that's what we've been looking at. So today I'm going to read you an account of uh, the resurrection of Jesus, uh, the first 18 verses, and this is really exciting stuff. Um, I'm going to state the obvious. We believe this historically, factually happened. This is not a metaphor, what I'm about to read to you. This is literal history. This happened in our space and time. Listen to this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there in the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, 
She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let's pray together. Thank you, Jesus, for these testimonies, for the reality of your resurrection. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the one that convinces that these things are true. So continue to work into us truth. Help us to reason in a way that bring honor, that brings honor and glory to God. Father, thank you for loving us with a love that will not let us go. We love you, and we are here because we are learning more and more about your love for us. We pray for your glory. We pray for our good. We pray that the news that you have for us would be good through Jesus. Amen. Here's the first point that I want you to know about this section of verses. This is what we're going to explore together. Faith is a gift. So if you leave today and you wonder, well, what was Dave's sermon about? What was John 20 about? That's what you can have in your brain. That's what I'm trying to communicate. Faith is a gift. Got it? Faith is a gift. Now let's get into the story. Let's look at this story. The story starts off with Mary Magdalene in the first two verses being the first one to come to the tomb. You'll realize it's early Sunday morning. She got there while it was still kind of dark. She arrives at the tomb. She sees that the stone is rolled away from the mouth of the tomb. And she looks in and can tell that Jesus is not there. We find out in verse 2 what she thinks has happened. She thinks that someone has stolen the body of Jesus. And so she does what perhaps we would do as well. She decides, I better go tell somebody that somebody stole the body of Jesus. So she runs back to the house wherever Jesus' disciples were staying and praying together and waiting. And she shows up and tells John and Peter and others more than likely were there as well. And Mary says, look, someone has stolen the body of Jesus. And John and Peter hear those words and they think, well, we better get to the tomb. We better check this out for ourselves. So as the text tells you, John and Peter run to the tomb. But don't you love how John tells it? He is faster than Peter. So the two started running to the tomb, and, and John makes sure that you know that he shows up first. Kind of interesting, isn't it? So John shows up at the tomb, and he sees that the stone is rolled away from the mouth of the tomb. And he looks in. And he can see certain things inside the tomb, the cloths and linen and these sorts of things, but he doesn't go in. And then, dot, 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 Peter finally arrives. Can't you just imagine what Peter probably did? I mean, in my mind, this is perhaps wrong, but knowing Peter like we do through the gospel accounts, Peter was probably that guy that showed up after John, we know that, and then like maybe nudged John out of the way so he can get in the tomb. Maybe he saw that John wasn't going in, so he was going to say, oh, well, I'm going to go on in, John. I don't know what your problem is, but I'm going in to check this out. 
So he manages to get inside the tomb and gets around John, and, and he explores what is going on in the tomb as well. Now, here's what's so interesting, and we are just going to scratch the surface on a lot of this stuff. But if you have other questions afterwards, I'd love to at least tell you things that I had to leave out, and we can explore more. But here's what verses 6 through 8 are basically telling you. Do you notice those little phrases like um, these claws were folded and they were over here and these were in a place over here? You notice that? Well, let me tell you what's really going on, what's trying to be communicated there. First of all, um, when you read in verse 1 that Mary saw what was inside the tomb, that is a different word than is used in verse 6 and 7 and 8 in particular to describe John and Peter and what they saw. So when Mary looked inside the tomb, when it says she saw, what that's telling you is what she looked at crossed her retina. <laughs> like, like she took in data that, oh, somebody isn't here, okay? When John and Peter went into the tomb and they started looking at what was there, the word that's used to describe Saul for them is actually the word that's communicating the idea that John and Peter really started wrestling and reasoning about what they saw. Mary was more about just factually. John and Peter were about the significance of what they were looking at. Follow me? So what they saw when they looked in the tomb is very important. They saw that the, these cloths and linens were, were somewhat folded. But what they're really saying is this. Remember that Jesus, after he was crucified, was actually wrapped, like mummified. Remember this? Like I think there are other gospel accounts that tell us that there were like 100 pounds of spices that were put on him. So what this is telling you is that John and Peter went inside and they saw what Jesus was wrapped in exactly like it was when he was put in there, except there was no body. So they saw the mummy wrap, if you will, without a body inside and underneath and in what was wrapped. And they saw that there was one for his body and they saw another one that was wrapped around his head. And both of them were in there, in the tomb, the part that was wrapped around his head and the part wrapped around the body of Jesus, and they were sitting there without a body in them. And they were looking at that, and they weren't just saying it was factual, they actually were reasoning, thinking about, what does this mean? And we know that they at least had to think of it in this way. If Jesus just revived... If Jesus just revived, he would have started to breathe, whatever it was, and ripped through, if possible, all of the wrapping. Make sense? You remember this kind of happened with uh, Lazarus in John 11? Jesus raised Lazarus, and Lazarus started to come out, and Jesus said, hey, go help him. Go unwrap, because he couldn't just break out of being mummified. Here's Jesus. Everything is wrapped. His body isn't there. Jesus didn't rip out of what he was wrapped in. That's what they were thinking. Because if he did, everything would be torn up. Something more than that must have happened. And it wouldn't really make sense for either people that love Jesus or enemies to steal a naked body. Really? That wouldn't make sense, would it? 
they would really take all the time to roll away the stone and then figure out a way to unwrap his body, carry a dead cadaver, and then wrap everything back up and sit it there? They knew something far more significant, much more significant had happened. Jesus was truly alive, and that he was alive supernaturally. And what they saw was the evidence that something miraculous had happened. Well, they're beginning to reason through that, and they decide they'd seen enough. So if you look at verse 10, they went back to their homes. But yet, in verse 11, what you have is Mary at some point shows back up. First two verses, she goes to the tomb. She looks in, sees, and interprets, well, oh, somebody stole the body. Goes back and tells Peter and John and others. John and Peter come to the tomb. They do more investigating. They do more reasoning and thinking. And sometime in there, Mary shows back up. And John and Peter leave. In verse 11, Mary is there, and she is weeping. She is weeping. And then she goes into the tomb, and the text says she's still weeping. And she goes inside and she begins to look. And what she sees is that at each side of where the body was laid were an angel. One at the head, one at the feet. And the angel actually asks her, Mary, what are you, what are you looking for? And she says, I'm looking for my Lord. Someone has taken him. Do you know where he is? Can't you just imagine her weeping? Can't you just imagine her trying to think about what is going on? Thinking that someone had stolen Jesus? So she responds to the angels and then she turns around. And she turns around to leave and someone is there. Now remember, she doesn't know it's Jesus, right? The text tells us that she looks at this guy and thinks, well, this must be the gardener. And so she turns around, and there's this man. And she says to him, or, or she sa he says something to her, and, and she says, did you take him? Remember, he's the guy she's looking for. All right. Did you take Jesus? Did you take him? And he says to her, Mary. And what does she do? She begins to cling to him. She has encountered the risen Christ. And she is clinging on to Jesus because in these verses, Jesus says, hey, don't cling to me. What I need you to do is tell John and Peter and the others that I am about to ascend back to my father. I'm going, I'm going to go back to heaven. I'm going to go back to the right hand of the father, to your God and my God. And I need you, Mary, to go and tell everyone that this is going to happen, that I'm alive, and that it won't be long before I ascend and go back to be with the Father. Mary, I need you to go tell the disciples. So she leaves, and she tells them what Jesus had told her. Now, as a sidebar, can you imagine... Can you imagine what must have been going on in Mary's heart and in her mind? I mean, here's a little background on Mary, just in case you had forgotten. In Luke's account, we find out that Mary actually lived an incredibly promiscuous life. She was more than likely a prostitute. 
um, which meant she was known for being that way, which meant lots of people knew where to find Mary and people like her when they desired that sort of activity. The Bible also tells us that she was demon-possessed. And what you have here is in this moment, Mary was the witness for the truth of Christianity. The only one for this brief period of time. She was it. She was the one that was going to tell everyone else, our Christ is alive and he's going to go back to the Father, to our God. What an immeasurable blessing and privilege she had. She knew what it was like to be far away from God, not thinking about God, not living for God, just figuring out how to make it. And now God had come into her life and she was radically changed. And she was even given this blessing of being the first one to the tomb and the first one to understand, to begin to understand that Jesus was alive. And the message of Jesus and the message of Christianity is, is real and it's true. So faith is a gift. I want to tell you why we know that's true. The first reason I got three for you, the first one is this. We know faith must be a gift. Just what I mean by that is we can never conjure up faith in ourselves. Faith is a gift. We never make it up. We don't pull ourselves up and that's belief. We don't conjure up faith within. Nope. Faith is a gift. A gift. And here's the first reason why that has to be true. Think about these 18 verses. The closest people to Jesus didn't get it on their own. Peter, John, Mary, and others, but in particular these three for these 18 verses, they had been with Jesus and heard his teaching. They had observed his miracles. They saw him. They were with him all the time. And they didn't think in their mind, oh, let me back up. Let me be more specific. Jesus told them over and over, I must suffer and die. I must be crucified. I must rise again. He told them that over and over and over, right? If you read through the gospel accounts, you'll find that over and over. Jesus said, this is going to happen to me. And Mary and John and Peter in these verses, they didn't immediately think, oh, yeah, Jesus said this was going to happen. They didn't do that. Mary came to the tomb and her instinct was, somebody stole this guy. Somebody stole my Lord. John and Peter were wrestling through, what in the world does this mean? We're going to get to the belief part in a minute. What in the world does this mean? None of them instinctively thought, oh yeah, Jesus told us that all this was going to happen and it's true, this is incredible. They didn't get it. And if the closest people to Jesus didn't get it, Faith is a gift. Faith is a gift. God gifts faith. And living, living 2,000 years later, faith is a gift for us too. That's the first reason why we know faith is a gift. Closest to people to Jesus didn't even get it. 
they had to be given faith. Someone had to work faith into them. Someone had to author it. Someone had to grow it. Someone had to make them understand. That's the grace of God. All right, reason number two. Our filters are all jacked up. Faith has got to be a gift because our filter is all jacked up. Now, I know when I, when I use the word filter, you typically think, well, that's the thing that people have or don't have when words come out of our mouths. I'm using it in the other direction. Every one of us has a filter through which we interpret our experiences, what we read, everything. And I'm telling you that the Bible says that our filter is all jacked up. It's all messed up. We do not receive things in the way that they are intended by God. We do not hear things naturally in the way that God intends for us to hear them. We do not process things the way that God wants us to process things on our own. Our filters are all messed up. When you read back through the gospel accounts, you'll find that there are two, in large, there are others, but in the main, in the main, there are two groups of people. One group we'll call the churchy type. That would be like us. They're the people that are super religious. They do the things they're supposed to do. They go to worship regularly. They read their Bibles. They pray. They give. Um, they are really, really religious and really, really churchy. And do you know what those people wanted from Jesus? The rules. Do you know how they approached Jesus? The rules. They got really mad at Jesus all the time because he wasn't following the rules. And when they would approach him, they would always want to know, well, what do we do here? What do we do there? They wanted the to-do list. They were always looking for the rules. They were always judging Jesus and assessing him based upon the rules. And they were always relating to everyone by rules. Their filter was to hear everything that Jesus said through the grid of rules. The other group, they were looking for someone to overthrow people because they wanted power. They wanted Jesus, like some have said, to, uh, what's the word, be a revolutionary. Jesus, if you just do what we say, you can overthrow these bad people and you can give us our rights of who we, you know, positions we really should have. So they heard everything that Jesus said through their filter of they were looking for a revolutionary. That's what they wanted. Now, here's what's true about both the churchy people and the others. On the one hand, the churchy people always wanted the rules because they assumed that they could do whatever was next. Just tell us what to do, Jesus, because doggone it, I can do it. Just tell me what to do and what not to do, and I can make it happen. Both groups, both groups created in the way that they lived and the way they relate to other people and us versus them way of life. That's the way they lived. They thought of their lives as us versus them, both of them. And neither of them, neither of them took it in really deeply and constantly, habitually, that someone had to die for them. They both lived as if their whole world is us versus them, and neither of them thought about very deeply at all or consistently or habitually that someone had to die 
for them. Filter was all messed up. Faith must be a gift because those closest to Jesus didn't get it. Faith must be a gift because our filters are all jacked up. Here's the third one. And this is really closely related to the second one, but it's a little bit different. And it's this. See if I can remember it. We never seek the real Jesus. Bible says there's none that seek God. It's not mean that there aren't people who are religious. It doesn't mean there aren't people who are looking for God. It means we never look for the real one. We never look for the real Jesus. We want a God who is super nice. We are seeking a God that explains everything. We want a God that doesn't want suffering. We want a God um, who owes us. And we want a God who's loving in the way that we define what love is. We could add to that, right? I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't, I would like a God like that. God that's super nice, who loves me the way that I think I should be loved. Who like, he owes me. So I kind of get to set the terms and then I'm going to do this so he does that. That's the kind of God that we're seeking. We're not ever seeking the real one. We're never seeking the real Jesus. I read one guy who said it this way. I thought this was brilliant. So I'll pass it off to you. We want a president. We don't want a king. We want the kind of savior that, you know, we elect. We want the kind of God that we choose and, and put in his place. We, we want the kind of God who represents our interests. We want the kind of God who does what we want, and we can, you know, throw him out if he's not doing things the way we think that he should be doing things. We don't want a king. See, a king is sovereign. A king doesn't have to explain everything. That's what we have in Jesus. We have an actual king. He's not a president. He's a king. And he does whatever he wants. And he doesn't have to explain everything to us. And this king that we have, we learned last week, he is a king who is unbelievably loving and compassionate. Maybe not always in the way we think, but in truth, he is. We even have a king who suffers for us. We have a king that is so compassionate that he was willing to die on behalf of us, of his people. We have a king who suffers. We have a king who's compassionate. But I'm telling you, that's not the king that we're, that's not the, that's not the Jesus or the God we're ever really seeking. That's why faith must be a gift. That's why all the time we have to continue to ask God, God, show me who you really are. Get out the clutter in my brain. And God, my filter is all messed up. Can you, can you, by your grace, continue to work on my filter so that I hear you the way you want to be heard? So that I understand things the way that you intend them to be understood? We have to pray all the time that God would make us want to want the real Jesus, the real King. Because so often... We don't want it at all.
Well, faith is a gift. Got it? So here's the second point. And this is really close to the first one. And uh, this apparently, what I'm going to tell you is apparently something that someone has said a long time ago. I haven't been able to track down who said it yet, but I read it for the first time this week and I had never heard it before. So I can't tell you who said it because I don't know. (laughs) I can just tell you I didn't make this up. Here's my second point. The stone was rolled away from the tomb, not so Jesus could get out, but so that we can get in. Jesus didn't need any help, okay? And for a long time, I certainly thought, yeah, that stone needs to be rolled away or else Jesus is going to be stuck in there. (laughs) But the stone wasn't rolled away for him. The stone wasn't rolled away so he could get out as if he couldn't get out unless that, you know, that stone was still there, if it was remained. No. Stone was rolled away so that we can get in. And what that means is that we need to get into the tomb. That means if you're here this morning and you're thinking about things like Mary, or you're thinking about things and reasoning and wrestling like Mary, and in different ways, reasoning and really wrestling like John or like Peter, the stone's rolled away so you can do that. So that you can really wrestle with what does it mean to believe? What does it mean that this tomb is, according to Christians, empty? What does it mean that Jesus is alive? God is inviting us to get into the reality of the resurrection and think about the empty tomb. Beloved, if you have never deeply thought about that before, take some time and think about it. You might have all kinds of questions about Christianity, all kinds of questions about the reliability of the Bible, and that's fine. But if the tomb isn't empty, none of the other stuff matters. If the tomb isn't empty, if Jesus isn't alive, nothing else matters. And everything else can be worked out in one way or another to one degree of satisfaction to others. But if the tomb isn't empty, if Jesus isn't alive, my message is futile. Christianity has no message. The stone was rolled away, not so Jesus can get out, but so we can get in. And we not only need to get in the tomb and inside the tomb and wrestle with what's going on, but we also need to get into Jesus. We need to get into Jesus. See, here's where we plug back in to what was going on with John and Peter. When it says that they saw and they believed, I think that's at the end of verse 8, you got to know that one of John's great phrases that he loves to use over and over throughout the Gospel of John is when he talks about someone believing most of the time, I should have checked this, but I didn't check every detail, I'm sorry. I didn't even think to do this actually, but I should have, so my bad. Almost every time that he uses the word believe, he's actually saying believe into Believing into something. Now let me tell you the difference between believing in and believing into. Now this story I'm going to tell you is not completely true. Okay? And if you'll allow me to put an asterisk here, I'll tell you at the end of the story where it's not true. All right? So work with me here. 
This is a living story based on factual real events that might have happened in my life. Um, do you remember what it's like to, uh, uh, when your parents, if they did, tried to help you get comfortable with being in the water, like going to the pool? I remember my parents, uh, knowing that I had some fear of water, thinking of ways that they can help me get in the water, help me get more comfortable and not be so nervous about getting into the water the first time, you know, getting my head under the water, you know, all that stuff. And um, so when my girls were young, Dabney and Bergen, we would go to the pool. And when they were first learning about the water, you got their floaties on, you know, all that kind of stuff, um, they would both stand on the edge of the pool and I would be in the water, right? Remember this? Not, do you remember Dave doing this? But do you remember this kind of story? Where you're the one in the water and you're holding your hands out and you're saying, okay, jump, I'll catch you. Remember this? And I would say, Dabney, I'll catch you. And, you know, she'd get to the edge and kind of, you know, and then come back. And then, but finally she would jump. And she would jump into the water and I would catch her. And then I'd lift her up and, you know, everything was great. Water was everywhere. You know, it was just so much fun. But it was helping her getting more accustomed to the water. Then I'd put her back on. And you know how these things go. When you do this stuff with kids, they, like, want to immediately jump again. And then again, 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 again. Well, Dabney turned to Bergen and said, Bergen, you jump in. No, no, I don't want to jump in. And I would say, Bergen, do you think Daddy can catch you? And she would say, yes, I believe, you can, I believe Daddy can catch me. But then Dabney would say to Bergen, well, Bergen, you need to jump. You need to jump in the pool. And finally, she did. See, here's the point. Bergen knew that I was capable of catching her because she saw me catch Dabney. She trusted me. She knew that my arms were working and I could handle Dabney. And if I could handle Dabney, I could handle her, right? She knew, she believed in the fact that I could catch her. But she, until she jumped in herself, she didn't believe into it. Make sense? There's a big difference between believing in and knowing that something is possible and knowing that daddy can catch and then entrusting yourself to that, believing into it, not just knowing that it could possibly happen and probably will, but actually jumping into my arms. Now, here's the asterisk. Bergen had no problems jumping in the water. I didn't have to coax her very much at all, and probably not Dabney either. But you get the point. John is saying that we need to believe into Jesus. And what it means to believe into Jesus is that we take Jesus' death and we take Jesus' resurrection and we bring that into the center of our lives. That's what it means to believe into Jesus. And that means we not only understand that Jesus died for sinners like me, that Jesus lived for sinners like me, that Jesus rose from the dead for people like me, it means that I bring that into my life and I begin to acknowledge that I am a sinner. Not just those people over there, but me. And it means that I have to acknowledge and I begin to acknowledge if I bring Jesus into the center of my life, <clears throat> excuse me, that I needed him to die for me and live for me and be raised from the dead for me. 
And it means that if Jesus is being brought into the center of my life, which I have to do all the time, over and over and over, it means that as Jesus pursued people, then guess what? I will begin to pursue people as well. It means that I'm not just living for me. It means that I'm not just living for these few people around, but that I'm open and I'm looking out and I'm looking at others and I'm thinking about other people. It means that as I live my life and, and run that through the grids of your life, you're, whether you're single or married, whether you uh, are in a career or you have a job, whether you're a student, um, think about your neighbors, think about everything in your life and bring Jesus into the center of it so that you realize that your job, your family, relationships, whatever it is, it's not about you. That life is actually, in large part, sacrifice. Jesus' life was sacrifice. My life will be sacrifice. Jesus came to pursue people. I pursue people. Because of his death and resurrection, I have power to change. Because God is working that into me. It means that I don't expect life to just get better and better. It means that I don't expect God just to make my great life even better than it is. It doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that everything revolves around my thoughts, my plans. Do you remember the words of Christ? If anyone wants to follow me, let him take up his cross and die. Daily, one of the gospel accounts has. So to bring Jesus into the center of my life means that I got to do a whole lot of dying. Dying to my power, dying to my plans, dying to my agendas, dying to my wisdom, dying to dot, dot, dot. Because resurrection always follows death. And when I die, life comes. You want to know how to work on relationships and have relationships and, and develop healthy relationships? Just be ready to die. I heard a guy say at a, um, at a wedding ceremony one time to the, to the groom, and I've used this before, welcome to your funeral. What does God say to husbands? Love your wife as Christ loved the church. He died for her. On my wedding day, Welcome to my funeral. It's a life of dying. To bring Jesus into the center of our lives means that our lives begin to look like his. Not that we save anyone, but the point is we are being saved and have been saved, and that's going to continue to work out. So my life is not about me. Now, let me tell you why that's important. Here's why that's important. It's important to believe that faith is a gift and it's important to really deeply understand that the stone was rolled away, not so Jesus could get out, but so that we could get in, so that we could get into the tomb and we could get into Jesus. And that's really important because the message of our culture is really wrong about faith. And remember, we are the culture. We are part of the culture. It's not just out there. We live out there. We're part of this. You see, the way that culture views belief is this. I see this a lot in, in athletics because um, I love sports. You need to believe that something will happen before it happens. You know, I cheer for the University of Tennessee. We have had a horrible football team for 
longer than I want to admit. But you know, the mantra is, hey guys, you got to go out there and you got to believe you can win today. And if you believe you can win, it can happen. Heard this before? You see it everywhere. Because from the culture standpoint, if you can't believe it can happen, then it never will. So you have to believe, and then whatever it is that you want to happen, hopefully will happen. That's the way the culture talks about faith. Believe first, and boom, this might appear like a self-fulfilling prophecy. And here's the other reason why it's so important. Because for whatever reason, oftentimes the church has misrepresented faith. And a lot of us have grown up in this. And I'm not saying that the church intentionally has done this. I'm saying what most people have taken from the church is where I'm getting that the church has misrepresented things. Let me give you some examples how the church has misrepresented faith. How many of us have been in situations in which you come to the end of some kind of religious Christian gathering and the statement is made, bow your head, close your eyes. If you want to follow Jesus, raise your hand. And to those of you that raise your hand, I want you to repeat this prayer after me. How do you get saved? You express your faith in this prayer in this particular way. And if you mess it up, then you might doubt as to whether or not you actually believed. So people have hung on to some particular day, some particular time in which they prayed the sinner's prayer in the particular way as if that faith <clears throat> we'll call a work saved them. And so lots and lots of people have actually ended up thinking that faith is a work, that I just express myself in exactly the right way and that's what saved me. Here's the other way the church has misrepresented faith. We've made faith like a switch. You know, I'll give you this analogy. It's not perfect, but it's the best I could come up with this week. Jenny looks at me and says, Dave, I really think you should start eating better. And you know what my response to that is? How about New Year's? I'll, I'll make it a New Year's resolution. I'll start eating better on January 1st of 2021. Or, okay, Jenny, you want me to start eating better? Let's think about what that will look like for me. I want to find a way that I can eat better so that on the weekends I can eat the way that I want to. You ever been there? Maybe not. I guess it's just me. Well, hopefully you can somehow understand what I'm saying. We think of faith in that way, that it's like a switch. Don't delay. Don't put it off. We think of faith and we teach at times that faith is like a switch that you can just decide to do it whenever you want to. Oh, yeah, don't put it off. Do it today. Don't wait till New Year's. Don't, don't try to schedule on your weekends when it's convenient for you. You just make that decision, but don't delay. Beloved, faith isn't like that at all. Faith is a gift. And you know that faith is starting to churn within you if you are starting to realize that you aren't all you think you're cracked up to be. And if you feel yourself recognizing that there are motives that are deep within your heart or things that are going on that you know are contrary to God and you realize, oh, I'm beginning to not have so much confidence in myself. 
And I'm beginning to realize that I need to believe in what God says about who I am and what he says he's done for me and that he's the one that gives me power to live. You always know that faith is happening whenever you're beginning to distrust yourself and you are beginning to receive more and more from God. And that often happens over a long period of time. Lifelong. Faith is always growing and understanding who we are and who God is and repenting and believing and trusting and obeying. That's why it's important to really think about faith as a gift. And I'll end with this. Um, this is what hangs, this is what ties everything together. Um, three simple words. Jesus is alive. The reason why faith is possible and the reason why Jesus would invite us into the tomb and into him is because he's alive. Sometimes when I go on study leave or we go to the mountains for a vacation, I will go by my grandparents' grave sites. Um, one set's buried in Tennessee, and my granddad's buried in southwest corner of Virginia. My grandmother lives north of Raleigh. Um, but I oftentimes, well, I shouldn't say often, there are times in which I have gone to their grave sites. You know why I do that? You can probably guess. I love going there because I can remember things about my grandparents. I feel close to them when I'm there, even though I know they're not there. Helps me remember things that they've said, things that they've done. In my case, it even is a time in which I can remember things that I said at the memorial service or at the graveside service. It's a time in which I can sit there beside their I can sit beside them and I can look out over the mountains and think, one day Jesus is coming back and as glorious as his looks now, it's going to be unbelievable to see all these people rise out of the ground and Jesus makes everything new. It's a beautiful spot to do that in the mountains, at least for me. And do you know that as we, as I stand and you sit here today, that we don't know exactly where Jesus was entombed. Do you know that? We don't know. We do not know the precise location where Jesus was entombed. Do you know why people know where people are buried? Not just so they can remember. So they might go there and worship. Might go there and set up something. It must be that the earliest followers of Jesus didn't care about where he was entombed because they never thought they lost him. When Jesus said to his disciples, it's better for you that I go because the Holy Spirit will come and he will remind you of everything that I've said and done, they didn't care where the tomb was because they still felt that they had Jesus every day. And yeah, we're going to read more accounts about them wrestling with faith and what that means. But let me tell you, they must have believed that Jesus was still with them moment by moment because they had the Holy Spirit. Because his word was, Jesus' word was true. He is alive. And because he is alive, 
He is inviting each one of us. Whether you have believed for 50 years, he is inviting you to get into him and to look at your life and examine if you have grown in your Christian faith apart from Jesus' death and resurrection. And if you're here and you're exploring Christianity, Jesus is alive means he is inviting you into him and all that he promises to be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are alive. If you weren't, everything that we have done and are doing would be pointless. So we ask that you would continue to reveal yourself to us. Remind us that faith is a gift and that we need to get out of ourselves and into you. As we sing these words about your resurrection in the moments to come, may we do so with a deeper level of thanks and hope because we believe that you are real and you're alive. In your name I pray, amen. Don't leave here without knowing that God has determined to bless his people. That means no matter what you're going to do this week, he's with you and he is at work. So hear this blessing and know that what I'm going to tell you has been bought by the blood of Jesus. Try to live as if you actually believe it's true this week. Now, the God of peace that resurrected Jesus from the dead, because of the blood of Christ, he is eternally bound to you. And through the blood of Christ, he is equipping you with every good thing that you need to do his will. It's even better. He's working in you what is pleasing in his sight so that one day, one day, he will get all the glory both now and forever, world without end. Amen. Go in peace.